0: That's a wonderful thing to be together with the people of God this morning and sing songs of praise to Him and remember His Son and uh, to look into His Word for a while. These are great things that we can do to honor Him and help one another get closer to Him. Thank you for being here. We have visitors, as was mentioned, and we're really happy that you can be with us to honor the God of Heaven this morning. Our theme this year at Eastside, as we've focused uh, since the beginning of the year, has to do with God's desire that His house be a house of prayer. We want to be a house of prayer here at Eastside. And that means not only uh, that we're focused on worship when we come together, but that we're focused on communication with God. The song that we just sang, I Close My Eyes, I think it's one of the most beautiful songs that has ever been written about the um, personal experience that one has with God when you pray. It is just uh, almost overwhelming sometimes to think about being permitted to be in the presence of God and speak to the God of heaven in a loving relationship. Our lesson this morning uh, expands that idea of a person's uh, devotion and love and communication to God in prayer to what happens when the church as a whole is doing that and we're sharing together in those experiences of prayer. The text is taken from Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, where Luke writes that when Peter was in in prison, constant prayer was made for him by the church. Christians, individually and collectively, are admonished to be patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Romans 12 and verse 12 says, continuing steadfastly. The old King James Version says, be instant. In prayer, That's an all-the-time thing. Be immediate in your prayers. In Acts 12, we find a group of Christians doing exactly that in the context of mounting persecution from which I think the people of God thought that they might not be able to extricate themselves by any human means. Yet, they prayed. Maybe they felt that all they could do was pray in the circumstances in which they were in, which we'll discuss in just a moment. Sometimes we as Christians today, individually and collectively, might feel the same way about situations that we encounter. Whether you or a loved one has been given the diagnosis of some horrible illness, maybe that's incurable, maybe that's terminal, or maybe you have insecurity about your job, or your future life, or your family relationships, or... Maybe you're trying to work with someone who's straying from the Lord, whose soul is lost or soon to be lost if they don't turn. Or maybe you're concerned, even as we prayed this morning, Brad mentioned the moral decline of our nation and of the world. And we're, so many of us are so concerned about that. And what else can we do but pray? Well, maybe there are some things, but praying is at the top of my list. And so all of those things are, are things that press on us and can distress us and concern us, but all of those things are things that we can pray about. And that prayer that prayer will help. I know that sounds ridiculous to the world. Does anything to a worldly person, to a person who doesn't really believe in God or His power to change things in this world, does anything sound more ridiculous than a group of Christians praying to God for help in the middle of a crisis? And yet, you and I know that it may well be the most powerful and significant thing we can do. We open up Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and he killed James the brother of John with the sword. What a horrible circumstance. James the brother of John, the fisherman from the Sea of Galilee, one of the witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, a simple disciple, whom Christ had chosen to be one of the twelve apostles, the witnesses that he sent into the world. James is killed. Yet Peter will be delivered from a similar fate. Herod throws him in prison. He saw that it pleased the Jews that he'd killed James, and in verse 3, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. There's a passage that this same Peter writes later on in his life. I just want to notice it with you for a minute, and then we'll go back to Acts chapter 12. But it kind of is an overview of what we're going to be seeing in Acts chapter 12. And it's found in 1 Peter Chapter 3 in verse 12. Peter's actually quoting from the Old Testament from the Psalms. And he says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're going to see that statement played out in Acts chapter 12. First we'll notice that the eyes of the Lord are indeed on the righteous. God sees our trials. He knows whatever it is that's going on in your life that's disturbing you, that's problematic to you, that's stressing you. He knows the persecutions you face, the trials you endure, and the efforts that you're making to overcome those things and glorify His name. God sees our trials. Here, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. They were, on the, uh, they were on the righteous when James was killed. They were on the righteous when Peter is in prison. And they're certainly on the righteous when the church takes up the business of praying for Peter as he is imprisoned and facing almost certain death. Herod harassed some from the church. That's what the text says. Between 41 and 44 A.D., The fifth Herod that we read about in the New Testament ruled over Judea. He is the grandson of Herod the Great who ruled during the time that Christ was born. You might remember him for killing all of the babies uh, around Bethlehem. This Herod in Acts 12 is also uh, the nephew of the Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist. So it comes from a long line of Merciless killers of good. This Herod is called Herod Agrippa I. He is more popular than the other Herods, perhaps, except for the last one we read about in the New Testament. And yet, he's popular because the Jews like him, because he's bent on persecuting Christians. And you see that even in our text. It pleased the Jews. It pleased the Jews that James was beheaded. This had so pleased the Jews that Herod thought to do the same to Peter and planned to put him to death as soon as the feast was over. But God saw what the righteous were suffering at the hand of Herod. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And God answers the prayers of the church. Again in chapter 12 and verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Truly, his ears are open to their prayers, the prayers of the righteous. The word constant there, as it's translated in the New King James Version, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The word constant uh, suggests something that is, is literal. As far as something that's not stopping, something where people are stretching out themselves to do this, extending themselves on a continual basis. The church, the church is praying, and God would save Peter in response to the church's prayer. Notice that the church was praying specifically for him. Even as we prayed this morning specifically for a number of people. Here we prayed as a church for people individually, naming them. And so it was with the prayers of the church for Peter in Acts chapter 12. The church prayed constantly and the church prayed for him, exhibiting faith and patience as they did so. It was obvious, and it is obvious as you read the text, that Herod seems a little bit concerned that Peter might get away. If you think about Acts uh, and what had happened a little earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, you might remember that Peter and John had already one time broken out of prison. Well, not really. They'd been led out of prison by an angel and went back after they'd been put in prison and preached in the temple. You might remember that from Acts 5. I don't know if Herod was aware of that when it happened, but he was probably aware of it by the time Acts 12 rolls around. So he's got Peter in prison and he's got him guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's 16 soldiers who are guarding one guy. He's sleeping, Peter is, as the text unfolds, between two of these guards. round the clock, these guards are keeping watch over Peter to make sure he doesn't get away. And Herod has now almost achieved his purposes because the text will tell us that the very next day, he was intending to bring Peter out and kill him. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping, bound between two ch- chains, between two soldiers. The guards before the door were keeping the prison. And of course, the angel of the Lord comes and appears and tells Peter to get up, put on his garment, pokes him and wakes him up, tells him get going. And they just walk out of the prison. The door opens by itself as if uh, by magic, but it wasn't magic. It was the supernatural power of God, all of this. And Peter just walks out of the prison with the aid of an angel. But I want you to notice that all up until this time, the tremendous faith, patience, and perseverance that the church exhibited by constantly praying for Peter. Constantly praying for Peter. A lot of bad things that happened. Yet their faith was undimmed. Do we understand the importance of constantly praying? The Bible says, "Pray without ceasing." First Thessalonians chapter five. We already read in Romans 12, "Continue steadfastly in prayer. I read a story this last week, a man was traveling in Italy a uh, number of decades ago though and he was at a nicer hotel and it had some things back then that were kind of new amenities but he was sitting in the restaurant and they had a buzzer to push if you wanted the waiter you just had to push the buzzer this little red button you know just push and the waiter was supposed to appear well he, he was needing a waiter and he pushed it and waited a while nobody came pushed it again nobody came pushed it again nobody came finally a, a friend of his came and sat down by him and says what you doing he said well I'm trying to get the waiter to come I'm pushing this button and the guy said, "Well, I've been here before. Let me show you what what, what you got to do." And so he he puts his thumb on the button, and he holds his thumb on the button, and holds it there, and holds it there, and holds it there until a waiter shows up. And he said, "That's what you got to do. You got to keep your thumb on the button." And so it is with prayer. God wants us to keep our thumb on the button. He's there ready to answer our prayers. He knows what's going on, but He wants to hear from us. And He wants us to be steadfast and fervent in our prayers. To keep that thumb on the button of prayer and never let up. Never stop. Just continue to pray. The other thing I want you to notice in this text, and uh, it'll take a little bit to unpack this, but the activity of prayer extended beyond the regular assemblies of the church. kind of becomes obvious um, as you read in chapter 12 and verse 12, Peter being freed, realizing he was freed, he comes, uh, considering all that, he comes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Not the whole church, not everybody, but this is part of what Luke means when he says the church prayed constantly. Here there were many gathered in a church, in in a house rather, but it wasn't the whole church. How do I know that? Well, when you get down uh, to the end of this context and Peter presents himself, you know, there's kind of the funny story where Rhoda doesn't let him in at first, knowing it's him, but she goes back and tells everybody he's at the door, so he has to stand there pounding at the door. Finally, he gets... In and gets to talk to these disciples who are praying, and he, he says to them uh, that they are to go and tell James and the brethren in verse 17. What does that mean? It means there are a whole bunch of people, members of the church, leaders of the church, who weren't there. And yet this counts as part of the church praying. You see, the church does things assembled, and many times in Scripture, When the Bible talks about the church doing something, it is an assembly of the church as a whole. But there are other times, quite a few of them actually, where the church does things in a distributed way outside of the assembly in small groups or even by individuals doing things that is credited to the local church. You have a number of examples of that, I think, in the book of Acts. The disciples in Acts 2.42 continued steadfastly in prayer and the breaking of bread, among other things. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, after they'd been released from prison, they met with some disciples, maybe the whole church, but it doesn't say. They were assembled together and they prayed. But notice especially a couple of passages that I think are uh, clear about this. In Acts chapter 20, we're familiar with the Apostle Paul meeting with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. So it's not the whole church, it's just the elders that come down from Ephesus to meet Paul at Miletus. And of course uh, Paul has a lot to say to them. When you come to the end of that time, it says in Acts 20 and verse 36, when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Well what would that what would you say that is? Is that the church praying? Well, it's not an assembly of the church praying. <laughs> But it's the church praying, isn't it? And then, a little later on from that, in Acts 21, uh, the Apostle Paul, on his way to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, visits the city of Tyre and spends uh, a week or so there. Seven days, it says, Acts 21 and verse 4. And and then in verse 5, it says, When we'd come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children. Till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. So here's just some families of the church at Tyre going, escorting Paul out of town and kneeling down on the beach and praying. Is the church praying there? I think so. And so we have in Acts chapter 12. I want us At Eastside this morning. To think about the implications of that. If it is our goal. And our theme. To be a house of prayer. Exactly what does that mean? Well we pray in the assemblies together. But doesn't it mean. Much more than that. I think it did in Acts 12. It means that we pray. In homes. As families. And not just at meal times. We've suggested this year as you read your scriptures through the week, that read the scripture and maybe pray as a family about what you've read. When you're gathered with Christians for just a meal, or game night, or whatever it is, what's wrong with praying? Nothing wrong and everything right. Maybe you get together for a singing in someone's home. Being a part of the men's and ladies' prayer times that the church is scheduled is another good way. What we're saying is there are lots of opportunities to pray. And if we're to really be the house of prayer that God wants us to be, it's not just in these walls that the prayers will be offered. But it will characterize our lives individually. And collectively, in small groups, and in private, wherever we are. That's what it means to be a house of prayer. As we go through Acts 12, we see that the church was a house of prayer everywhere. And if the church is a house of prayer, it's a house of prayer everywhere, not just in a location. God answers the prayers of the church. His ears are open to their prayers. God delivered Peter and James. He answered the prayers of the saints. But he did so in different ways, didn't he? Someone might say, well, how did he deliver James? You know, James was beheaded. How is that deliverance? Peter was delivered from prison, but James was delivered into the presence of the Lord. And don't we really believe that James' deliverance was the better of the two? I know the Apostle Paul did. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was facing this choice of whether to live on and Help the Philippians and others or or perhaps to be put to death. And he says, If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, he says. Greg Chandler was with us a couple of weeks ago and preached uh, several really pointed lessons. And I love the one the collision on the plains of Dura where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego talk to king king Nebuchadnezzar and, and basically the king says you better bow down to this idol or you know I'm going to throw you to the fiery furnace and you remember the answer Daniel chapter 3 and verse 15 when the king said who is the god that will deliver you the three respond by saying O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They're basically saying, we're going to be delivered either way, but we're going to serve God regardless. They understood it. Paul understood it. And I think the saints in the first century understood it as well. The deliverance that God gives us isn't always a physical one. The help that He gives us isn't always fixing the problem in this world that we think needs fixing. But it's helping us in ways that are far beyond that. And He hears our prayers. And He answers our pleas. And he cares for us. And that was true in Acts 12. Even though he waited, as we've already mentioned, to the last minute to answer the prayer. Herod was about to bring Peter out to have him killed. Acts 12 and verse 6. All this time, Peter had apparently been arrested before the days of unleavened bread. And now apparently those days are over and now Herod is about to bring him out. So it's been at least a week that he's been sitting in prison with the church being overwhelmed with concern for him that they're praying constantly for Peter. And yet God's left him in prison for at least a week for all this to go on. Is God sadistic? Is he just being cruel? What's the deal? Couldn't He have just let Him free the first day? What would have been wrong with that? Why do you think God waits, and He does this so often, waits to the last minute to deliver? Could it be that our faith grows with every passing minute as we rely on Him more and more? as things become more and more dire and more and more uncertain? Could that be? Could it be that without such experiences, we might never really know the peace that passes understanding? The peace that comes not when the prayer is answered, but when the prayer is offered. Did you hear what I said? The peace doesn't come when the prayer is answered. It comes when the prayer is offered. when you turn it over to God. That's what Paul is saying to us in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious let your request be made known to God. Those two phrases are both commands. And in the Greek language, they're what we call in the imperative. The language of a command. And they, they are both similar in their form and tense. One grammarian commenting on these two phrases says that the prayer and the not being anxious have to be continual they are ongoing, they are repeated it's a process all the time in the Christian's life Peter was in prison I mentioned this a minute ago but Peter was in deep sleep in prison I mean I don't know what stage of sleep he was in but whichever is the deepest one that's what he was in The angel has to poke him, poked by an angel, to get him to to rouse up, put his shoes on, put his garment on, and head out with him. Peter's still nearly dazed and confused, it seems, when he gets outside the prison. How could he sleep so soundly, he wonder. Probably, you know, could have been the night before he was going to be beheaded. I don't know how many of us would be just sound asleep that night. I think many people would be not sleeping at all. People were praying for Peter. And somehow, I think he had peace. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I know, you know, God knows, that it often appears in this world as if evil has the upper hand. It certainly did in the first century when the Roman Empire was trying to stamp out Christianity. But evil never wins in the end. And those those who do evil will not be victorious in the end. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Not long after these events, God struck down a prideful Herod. An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. In chapter 12 and verse 23 of the book of Acts. And yet, Herod struck down. But the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. The cause of righteousness increases. Evil is taken down by the hand of God. When life beats us to our knees, and it sometimes does, we're then in the right position to get help. James had been beheaded, Peter was in prison, just hours from execution. The church was still praying. Some may have wondered if it would do any good. But it did. The important thing is about all of this is that prayer requires a connection to God. And when you have that connection, anytime, anytime, things happen that concern you. You can go to God with that. In our text in Acts 12, The connection to God was based on the fact that these people were part of His church. Note that the church was praying. What is the church? It's not this building. The church is the saved. The church is those who have repented and been baptized for the remission of their sins. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells people that's what they have to do. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And they did that. And they were added to the church. The church is the body of the saved. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, Jesus is the Savior of the body. And the body is the church and He's the head of the church. So when we talk about the church is the saved, there are people who are in a covenant relationship with the God of heaven. And those people can talk to God anytime. Because they're His people. They've been washed in the blood of His Son. And they've been transformed into the image of Christ. Let us make constant use of our connection to the Lord in the body of Christ. Let us pray constantly and be that house of prayer that God wants us to be. One, more, one other thing I want to share with you this morning in way of maybe helping us appreciate this a little more and offering an invitation to those who may not be part of the body of Christ. I want to tell you a story about something that happened right before World War II in Atasca, Texas. There was a school that burned down, tragic event, and uh, over 200 students were killed in the fire. Um, the town of Atasca, after the war was over, rebuilt the school. They rebuilt it with what was at the time the most modern sprinkler system to put out fires, you know, fire prevention system, the most modern one in the entire world. They spent a lot of money on it, built a nice school, put the sprinkling, sprinkler system in it to protect their children. They had some of the honor students from the school give tours from People of the town and people would come and see it uh, from out of state even. This, you know, safety system that they had to put out fires. About seven years after that, the school had grown so much that they decided they needed to put an addition onto it. And in the process of that addition, they discovered that the sprinkler system had never been hooked up. Is your sprinkler system hooked up? Do you actually have a real connection to God because you've obeyed the command to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins? Unless you become a child of God, you don't have that family connection. But you can have it this morning. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.